Hello and welcome back for another episode of Ranching Reboot. I'm your host, Brian Alexander, and this is episode 142. Ranching Reboot is made possible through the generous support of my amazing patrons on patreon.com slash redhillsrancher and my subscribers on Spotify. I need more help from folks just like you to help keep Ranching Reboot on the air. So if you'd head over to patreon.com slash redhillsrancher and check out all the patron benefits and add your name of the ranks to my subscribers on Spotify, sign up now for just five bucks on either platform and you'll get access to a podcast feed that doesn't have ads. Those episodes start with just the intro music. That's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Red Hills Rancher, or just click the links in the show notes. I'm looking for potential sponsors for next year, and if you'd like to talk to me about sponsorship package and see what I have planned for next year, email me at redhillsrancher at gmail.com. And since now y'all have my email address, if you have any guest requests or suggestions, you can send those into the same address. If you're not using LandTrust, I, I just don't know what to say anymore. LandTrust is a great platform to connect landowners with sportsmen that just want to enjoy what you have to offer. Upland bird season just opened here, and as I'm recording this, my second group of hunters is wrapping up their hunt. So far, everybody's had great luck finding birds, and my family's going to enjoy a nice Christmas. LandTrust is super easy to use on both sides of the fence, so what are you waiting for? Head on over to LandTrust.com slash A slash Reboot, or just click the link in the show notes and see what they can do for you today. My guest this week is Trevor Burian. Trevor is not just a rancher, he's a visionary in the world of regenerative agriculture. With a keen eye on the future, he's constantly exploring innovative methods to enhance soil health, improve livestock management, and foster sustainable food systems. His journey is one of both challenges and triumphs, and it's imbued with a deep understanding of the intricate balance between nature and agriculture. From managing his oil field business to experimenting with controlled burns on his property, Trevor embodies the spirit of a modern-day rancher who's not afraid to push boundaries. So buckle up as we dive into a conversation filled with insights, experiences, and forward-thinking ideas with Trevor Burian. Hey, Trevor. How's it going, buddy? Good, Brian. Good to be back. Yeah. What is this? Uh, number three, I think for you. Yep. 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 Number three. Second one was just me, mostly me asking you questions, giving a quick update, but yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think we need to have that every once in a while. <laughs> yep. Yep. For sure. I don't always get a chance to talk about what I'm doing because I'm more interested in what you guys are doing. So uh, <laughs> what have you been doing? What have you been up to the last few months? Well, we got a couple groups of our custom grazers in and out of here. Um, we brought in cattle. Um, the big group of steers are seven, a group of 745 steers. We brought them in uh, April 30th and got rid of them on October 12th. And so I had a, yeah, learning curve with, with, with them. And then we brought in another, another group of cattle of uh, breeding heifers May 10th and then got rid of them. Uh, be no, it'd have been um, middle of October, but October 15th. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Well, but before we get too far into that, what it, I'm sure there might be like three or four people that have, you know, kind of started listening to the podcast since the last time we talked. Why don't you like, what's your 30 second elevator pitch about who you are and what you do? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Trevor Burian, uh, we ranch and my wife, me and my wife, Bailey ranch in, uh, Western North Dakota, uh, we were uh, 
pretty traditional cow calf operation for a while, for about a decade and then uh started transitioning into regenerative agriculture and then uh going to ranching for profit and figuring out we probably shouldn't even yep there 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 it is uh figure out we probably shouldn't even own cows because our winter feed costs were just so high and even cutting off you know a month or two of winter feed costs it still was going to be pretty tough uh so yeah we sold the cow herd and transition to just we're 100 custom grazing right now taking in other people's cattle i don't know if that's what we're going to do forever but uh yeah that's the right place for us right now so that's what we're doing i agree i, I mean the numbers kind of don't lie um and for a lot of people it, it makes sense to go go towards a custom grazing model but on the same on the same token there's still got to be people that own the cows and it, it just doesn't make sense for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think someday we might try to get back into some, um, in, into cow calf, but I think it's probably me going to be more of the model of buying when the market's low and then riding, riding the market up and then maybe dispersing the herd, you know, once the market hits, hits highs again, which we're looking probably 10 years down the, down the line to get back to where we are right now but yep future future plans (laughs) not a bad move and you know you have to see it like you have to see the drought cycle you have to see the cattle market cycle you have to almost see it go through one time and pay your dues you know get burned it cost money right It, it costs money to learn those lessons watching the cycle but after you've seen it once or twice it's like oh i get it now I know when to buy in next time and I know Uh when to sell next time. So it doesn't cost me. So this education doesn't cost me a fortune a third time. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, even when we sold our cows, it was beginning of uh, 2022. Uh, We got a fairly good price for them, but you know, if we could have waited a year, we could have capitalized even more. But in between that span, we probably would have been spending a thousand dollars a head feeding them uh, last winter because we had a pretty, pretty tough winter um but just being in the uh position next time if we do that to not be also trying to service a whole bunch of debt um would 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 really help because you know when you're already in debt and uh and have to take out more loans to, to to feed the herd it just ends up you end up eating into your equity and so yeah we had to we had to get out do you think that's the path as the guys that are keeping the guys that are staying in like the, the cow calf business? Do you think they're eventually going to start eating into their equity because they have no choice to keep going? Yeah, I see it all. I see it all around me. That's kind of what the model is. And now people are, you know, getting a lot of that paid back here with, with these markets, which was much needed. And hopefully they stay high here for, a year or two otherwise i think we're just going to be right back to where we were here a year or two ago with you know low cattle prices and everyone wondering how how this is going to work yeah okay so i've talked to several people over the last couple months um i talked to uncle wally we off the record talked to craig guffey um the question is or the question has been is how high is the is the cattle market going to go 
And one of the reasons I take the High Plains Journal, every once in a while they've got, you know, some good articles in there. They put on some good events. Um, do you take High Plains Journal? No, I, I haven't. Okay. Well, all the way in the back, okay, the back three pages are what I go to first. There's a page that's uh, area alfalfa prices. So it's got graphs on it, you know, show you what alfalfa prices are doing. And the page before that has all the cattle market information and the graphs on it. Like the facing page is, you know, all the sale barns and what their reported sales for classes. And then they summarize it in three graphs. It quit looking like a skateboard ramp three weeks ago. Like three weeks ago, there was a definite top in the 800 pound calf market. Right. And it started to roll off two weeks ago, saw a peak on the slaughter cow market and it's starting to roll off young stock, like steers and heifers, young stock prices are still, still pretty high. I mean, they're holding up. So the question that I would have is, well, not a question. I don't think that we've topped the market. I think there's going to be a dip. And I think it's going to go back up maybe in another month or two, but I, I don't, I don't think prices are going to go back to where they were 18 months ago is what I'm saying. I think, I think we may have established a new low and we're just going to keep creeping up from there. What do you think? I'd agree with that. Um, I don't think we're building any, we're not, we're not rising in, in, in cow numbers yet. And then especially uh, there was some TikToks on it on it yesterday, the last 24 hours on people's open rates. And uh, we just got done with our EM, EL meetings in Colorado Springs and from various producers down there, heard, heard a lot of people talk about just astronomical open rates. And so if that's, if that's the case everywhere, I mean, we're, <laughs> I mean, it, it has to go up. There's just not enough cows right now. Yeah. I mean, it, if our cow herd, like the breeding cow herd, is as small as it's been since like the 60s, maybe. And if we've had a subpar, you know, like industry-wide, if we've had subpar fertility and breed up, that's, you know, that hurts not just, that hurts for several years down the line, I guess is what I'm saying. It takes so long to recover. You know, when you've got pigs that can, you know, you can have three litters of pigs in a year. You, you know, if you have a subpar breeding cycle, it's not bad. You'll make that up. You know, you can make that up by the end of the year. Chickens, you know, chickens, you can turn those things three or four times a year as well. Cattle, you know, that's a two-year process for a commodity animal or nearly a three-year process for a grass-fed animal. Those numbers hurt for a long time. Like, it, it, can you share like maybe some like paint with a broad brush and like what what are numbers people are seeing that they're reporting that they're scared of? Um, like 30, 40% open rates. Um, and there was one person I talked to, um, here in the last week, they, um, their entire, so it, it was weird. And there's a lot of cases like this where one group of cows will breed up good and, a, and another won't like their heifers and young cows and three-year-olds, uh, were like at 85, 90% just great and everything like five and over that was in a different pasture there was 70 percent open 70 percent open yeah seven zero yeah yeah so uh, and yeah 
I've heard quite a few people having having some wrecks like that. So yeah, pretty tough to build a cow herd when you have open rates like that. But I've, you know, I've heard some people, you know, they're right around normal too. So it's not every single person, but I mean, when you have those wrecks here and there, that drags the, the whole average down. Yeah, it does. And I mean, 70% bread is, is less than ideal. 70% open. That's catastrophic. Like I, I'd hope whoever does that or has that situation is actively working and has found what their problem was and is taking steps to correct it. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like 70% breed up. I'd be pretty okay with that with, you know, my longhorns and Corrientes on the, like the bare, bare bones inputs that I give them. I've done better than that, but you know, I think that that's, that's acceptable. 80%. Like I'd like to see right around 80 low eighties percentage wise on a low input program. I mean, you can feed condition and fertility into anything. We all know that. And with as expensive as feeds got the last couple of years, it's, it'd be awful hard for me to want to haul out $300 a ton alfalfa to cows just to keep them, keep them alive through the winter. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. And, uh, how are feed prices down in your neck of the woods? You know, honestly, I haven't really kept up on them. Um, I believe alfalfa is still over 200. I think alfalfa hay is 200 to 240. Um, one of my buddies was thinking it might get back down around, you know, 180, 170. I told him he was dreaming and that <laughs> seems to be the case. Uh, I think like 20%, 20% range cubes, nothing special. I think they're over $300 a ton. So, you know, we go back the last couple of years, you know, you and I, we've been talking about on social media, you know, those, the, the, the video I'm thinking of the videos I did that kicked off hay war was that was over <laughs> a year ago and prices aren't coming down. Like they haven't really come off from when I made those videos about feed prices and what it would cost to keep a cow, you know, for this much, hay, you know, protein supplement, at this and hay at this, I, man, I don't know. Like it, I can't see spending a thousand dollars for the next 180 days to get a cow back to green grass like that. That does not compute at all in any kind of economic math for my operation. Yeah. Even, even with what the market is right now, that's, you're probably looking at break even at best if you're spending that kind of money to get a, get a cow through, through the winter. And I can't, you know, and I'm not going to go take out a loan on my equity and burn my equity just to stay alive and hope that the market holds out until next year when I've got, you know, when I would be selling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of value to be had staying out of the commodity market, not being, not being exposed to that kind of price volatility. If you stay in, if, if a person stays wanting to own cows. I think the, I think the way forward for somebody that wants to have cows and not lose their ass in the commodity game and burn up their equity is to sell direct to consumer. I, it's hard for me to see how a person could participate in the commodity production system and compete against subsidized operations that are selling below production costs and stay in business without 
burning burning future equity. Yeah, it, it's it's possible, but you just need to do something extra, like um, Shannon and Melinda Sims. Like they're selling um, a lot of their five, six year old cows, you know, at the top of the depreciation curve before it falls off a cliff. You know, in addition to selling selling calves, um, you just need to have something extra than that, or or you have your cow herd, and then you're also running a herd of stockers. You know, something to just kind of diversify yourself that, you know, especially for those really down years in the calf market where, you know, it's 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 not making a lot of sense. You just need something else to 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 get you by for a few years till the 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 market starts cycling up. And you know, custom I, grazers could be that too. But I look kind of what you do. My plan was to do a mix of custom grazing and doing my own cows while I was building the herd, you know, that plan that I came up with like five years ago. Um, it worked. It worked. I just, I, I don't know why, but when I was making that plan, I never assumed that there would be a massive three-year drought right as I was, <laughs> right as I was like really needing grass and really needing capacity. Um, man, that, that hurt a lot. That hurt a lot. We had to make some adjustments and now we've made a pivot to go a different direction. But, and that's just, I guess that's one of the risks of the business. And what direction is that again? So my cows, everything I've been working and breeding and working with the last three years. Um, my partner, the guy that I've been running, we've been commingled with our cows for two years already. He's going to buy those heifers and heifer calves and probably most of the bred heifers that have horns that he can work with. Um, so I'm going to have a bunch of horn cattle that are probably 80% bred that have been on my program. I'm trying to market over the next couple of weeks. Hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, that uh, that won't be an issue. Um, but he, his family has a, um, they do really good at farmer's markets in Kansas city. They sell a lot. I'm adding capacity to his, I'm adding capacity to his, his system. So my cattle are just going to go right into his system and right into his, right in his marketing apparatus. Um, they're only going to be 15 miles away and I'll probably get a lot of them back. I'll probably get to graze a bunch of them back the next couple of summers. Yeah, that's, that's great. Have get all the, the, the marketing built, built right into it it's going back to what we're good at, right? I'm good at grass. I'm good at managing the land. He's good at finishing and getting everything, you know, the production side, get everything scheduled to go to the plant. And his wife is the marketing whiz because who doesn't like a 25 year old tall, cute blonde trying to sell him beef. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's built in marketing power right there. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, so let, let's talk about some of your custom grazing this year. And actually, I, I want to hear, I want to hear about Keaton. Oh yeah. Yep. Okay. So for those of you out there in podcast land, I had a young man that worked for me. Um, he came out when he was a senior in high school and did kind of an internship program. And he ended up staying with me and working for me summer 2021 and then he went off to college he came back a couple times um 
summer 22 and helped out and he was up there helping you out this summer. So Keaton, I guess, um, gosh, I forget, but he's, he's a member of a family that's been in this area forever. And I've known a bunch of them. They're, they're just, they're good people. So tell me about, tell me about little, tell me about Mr. Keaton this summer. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he was great when he, uh, first got up here the first couple of weeks, I messaged Brian as I, like, how do, how do I get this kid to talk? <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> you don't. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. He's pretty, pretty hard to get opened up, but, um, yeah, you know, a month in the summer or so he, you know, spent more time around each other and, uh, you know, start giving his opinions on things and open up a little, but no, uh, he did a great job. Like I was looking for like in uh, a couple interns and, um, I was kind of expecting to get some pretty inexperienced guys that I was going to have to coach a lot. And, uh, Brian, Brian tag Keaton, one of my posts and ended up getting in contact with him and, uh, he wanted to come up. And then I, uh, got another guy, uh, Tim Sandoval, um, from Texas who had actually never didn't have any livestock experience before he was just, he's a chef, um, got super into regenerative agriculture and was obsessed with it. So he'd, had a lot of book knowledge and, and even as far as a polywire and stuff, uh, had done a lot of, you know, just computer learning on that. So yeah, they got up here and it was, it was great. Um, we hit the ground running and I was expecting to do, you know, with, with two herds, I was hoping to get daily moves on, um, on both herds every day, but I was like, well, if we got to go to every other day or whatever, that's a lot of cattle. Uh, cause one herd was 745 and then the heifers were 410 of them, but they just picked everything up so fast that we ended up going, uh, for sure two two moves a day. And then sometimes we were at four moves a day. So it was, it was pretty crazy. Uh, just every, and then we got some fencing projects, uh, done on top of that tore out like six, seven miles of existing barbed wire fences and put up i think four or five miles of uh single wire high tensile we have a lot more work to do but no it was extremely productive summer and yeah he was he was great it was great having him up here is so did tim stay on full-time uh tim stayed on until mid-october um till we got rid of the uh the heifers and then yeah then he left um but uh he's gonna come back next year i'm actually gonna send him to ranching for profit in uh <laughs> in abilene here um in december but so yeah he's going to come back next year and he might bring his brother up with him so yeah that, that's exciting to have him back and it just uh you don't have the learning even though they were great and caught on quick you know just a lay of the land and how everything works it'll be great to have him back again next year well just i had a thought you know, so last week I talked to Tyler Tobald, JTAC Farms, you know him? Yep, yep. And we were talking about, you know, some of the some of the issues in ag and some of the issues that are coming in the future. And so seasonal labor for for regenerative grazing is what I wrote down. And what that I guess what I'm trying to what I'm trying to get out there is yeah. It, okay. You had a great system this summer, 
had two guys, you had two herds moving two to four times a day. It's awesome. Great impact on the land. Well, now that it's November and you've destocked, I'm destocking. Our labor needs are, are, are dropping off rapidly. So if one of the, one of the things that we need as, as managers of land and livestock is that seasonal labor to go out and do polywire so they can move four times a day. What do we do with that labor when they're not moving cows four times a day? And how do we maintain a skilled pool of labor that can do that, but then still, you know, keep, have a way to keep them occupied in the off season so that when we do go back to grazing cattle at high densities and want to move, during the growing season, we can just you know call up our guys and be like, "Hey, grass is green. Come get your poly wire." Uh, do you understand what I'm trying to what I'm getting at here? What do you? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I've I've I actually thought about this a lot. So I think there's there there's a couple different routes. Um, you know, one one pool of people, or they they could be the the, the same group of people. So people that um, are interested in kind of regenerative grazing and uh need some practical first-hand experience to advance their career and go on and manage a place and and do all do all that in that career path and i think we kind of fit in a niche where if we can find those people and give them the opportunity to get some first-hand experience and kind of put them on a path to you know where they want to go in their career the problem with that is you only have those people for a short time probably one to three years. Um, and so then you have to keep, you know, getting people like that in. So there's, you know, you're recruiting pretty much all the time and it's a lot of work. Um, and then, you know, you're probably going to have some misses in there too. <laughs> you know, people that, that don't work out. Um, but also if, but if, but if you're in your place where your place can scale and, you know, bring them on and they build, build with you and you can get your numbers to a, to a place. Maybe there's a spot in there for a salaried position, but for a lot of us, that isn't really an option right now. So yeah, I think kind of stuck in that, uh, in, in that, you know, early adulthood, trying to give some people some practical firsthand experience and, and get some reasonable labor out of them um, in exchange is kind of where we're uh, stuck right now, I think. (laughs) Well, the note I just made was labor retention and turnover and labor a path forward and up the ladder and career progression, for lack of a better term. So career progression for somebody like, like Keaton or Tim, okay, and and not to talk about either of those two guys, like specifically, just like a generic version of of either one of them. You know, we got uh, Tim who's taken a path, who's who's come to it from food, and he's not like getting range management degree. And I don't know anything about him, but say you know, eventually he wanted to be doing doing things on his own. I guess the the pathway, you know, starts out okay. You, you show up, you're going to intern at an operation like yours or like mine. And, you know, we're going to teach you the basics of grass, the basics of, you know, of a cow and how it uses the land. Like 
not feeding the cow, make sure you're feeding the stomach, take care of the soil. The soil takes care of the grass, grass takes care of the cows. Blah, we get that. Then, you know, like the nuts and bolts skills, how to go out and move the water and set up the water tanks, how to go out and set up the poly wire. What's the best way to join two, two strings of poly wire together? What's the best way to hang a reel on a temporary, you know, temporarily on a fence? learning these nuts and bolts things and you'll learn the basic stockmanship. So that's a one year thing. Then they leave, they come back year two is, you know, some more advanced stuff, learning some more stuff, but at a certain point, you're right. You know, nobody wants to do that forever, right? We're not going to find 60 year old guys that have been out running polywire for 30 years on foot. That's not a reality that we're ever going to see. I don't think so. What would, I'm, I'm a, maybe you can help me out here. I'm maybe having some trouble thinking about what a career progression might look like for somebody like Keaton or like Tim coming to regenerative agriculture for the first year or second year and wanting to get to where you or I are. Yeah, I actually think there's a lot of opportunity right now for, for people like them. Uh, because neither of them, you know, come come from or, you know, family have any land to to go back to. But just with uh, the massive succession turnover that we're having and going to have here in the next five, 10 years with, the, you know, the age of farmers and ranchers being so, so old, uh, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for people to move into, you know, into managing those places. And with the expansion of, you know, regenerative agriculture, regenerative grazing, you know, there's more and more people learning about it that, that are going to want their land managed in that way. So like Tim's coming back again. And so I'm putting them through ranching for profit kind of, you know, because I want to get him in that network of people and help him get in that network so he can, you know, do some networking and, and have that background as well um, so that, you know, he can you know, move on someday and, 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 you know, find his own place to manage. And he actually even took a trip out to uh, Indiana, I think here this summer to look at a place, a guy was interested in having, maybe having him manage. It didn't end up, end up coming to fruition, but I think there, there, there might be a lot of opportunities out there. And, <clears throat> and so just, yeah, it's just a matter of finding those people and finding the right people um, that, uh, that can kind of fit that role. Yeah. And, and, and I think the same, you know, same, same for Keaton, I think he could easily, you know, manage a place, probably step into uh, a grazing, you know, he'd be pretty good at, at being someone's, you know, grazing manager, or, you know, working up into that type of, of, of position. Um, but uh, yeah. And then kind of, uh, you know, Tim has a lot of background or knowledge of, of the grazing and, you know, how soil functions and, you know, I feel what he needs to kind of learn about is more the economic side of it. And so you can bring that to the table as well. So I don't know. I, I like to uh, help, help my employees kind of, I want to figure out where they want to go in life and figure out where, where we can align and help each other out because, you know, I'm getting from something from them. They're getting something from me, you know, and if yeah, that goes beyond just labor and and money, and can set them on where, where they want to go, I think it's it is it's a recruiting tool for the future too. You know, when people move on, so hey, I worked for so and so; he was great and kind of helped me help me along. It wasn't just 
labor in exchange for money. Um, and I, I think, I think that could be a potential recruiting tool to, to get those type of people. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So some more thoughts on that, you know, as, as land turns over, it's not guys like you and me buying it for the most part. I'm not saying that, you know, there aren't guys in their thirties and forties going out and buying dirt. I'm not saying that I'm saying by and large, it's, it, it, it's big companies buying land. It's large corporations buying land. It's, you know, it, it's Microsoft, it's Exxon, it's Shell. You know, they're, I just saw a couple articles this morning about that they were investing in farmland. Like, yeah, I wonder why. Because they're starting to hear about soil carbon and carbon sequestration and regenerative farming and regenerative ranching and the benefit and what they can. And they're starting to understand that we can capture some of our emissions and put them right back in the soil with just some change in management practices. Like Bill Gates didn't, Bill Gates is late to the party. I don't think he had any idea about soil carbon when he started buying up farms. He might not even really directed that. He might've just told his investment guy, like you need to diversify my portfolio and land's always been a good investment. Now, so maybe a pathway forward as we kind of go move into the future and, you know, big ranches tend to get bigger, get bigger, get out, you know, as much as we hate that mentality, I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. We're going to have, we're going to have, a, there, there's going to be a need for labor for skilled labor. That's got a resume and like, yeah, I interned on Alexander. I interned with Trevor Burian. I interned with the Sims. I interned with um, who's somebody else we know, Sage Askin, right? I can manage, you know, I know, I know how to manage land. I know how to manage livestock. Those guys might be in demand in the corporate world to go run their corporate farms and ranches because they have the skills and they've got the background and the and the resume to prove it that they know what they're talking about versus you know, somebody that's just got a degree in chemistry and, and ag chemistry from you name it state land grant college. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's important for, for those people to, that you, that you bring on to kind of see your business too, and, and see how economically this works or why you're doing certain things. Um, because, you know, sometimes if you're just, you know, doing tasks, 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 they get good at those tasks, but you know, if they really want to progress in, in, into the business, they, they need to learn, you know, learn the whole business and learn how, you know, decisions you make can impact, in, impact things economically. So you made that comment and I got to thinking like for the last several years, you've, you and I have both enjoyed this, a very similar situation. We're ownership, we're management, and we're labor all under one hat. So if we have a dumb idea that we want to do on the rancher with the cows, it's probably going to get done because there's no checks and balances. What was, what was, talk about maybe some of your experience this year of having a separate labor layer and, and what that was like to adapt to. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, yeah, definitely some learning to that. Um, just in 
even basic communication where you want to set up the poly wire and and all that so there was a lot of learning curve and then um Keaton kind of always just went with the flow and and you know did, did was asked Tim, Tim Tim would come to me probably once a day with a with an idea or something he wanted to change or something we could do better and it, at times it was you know I kind of got frustrated with it but you know quarter of the time it was a pretty good idea and um you know when it even when it came to cell design or moving the water or just just stuff like that or different fences we could tear out and, and put up I mean it, it was it was helpful in a way that it, it really made me expand my mind getting a getting some other eyes on it you know and and uh you know when Tim Tim would bring that stuff up I'd you know we'd talk to Keaton and have a kind of a group discussion and and get get feedback well how how this work so it was frustrating at times but in the end it it, it was a, a major net benefit just because the only eyes that had kind of seen the ranch and everything you know was myself and 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 my wife pretty much but um she she just I just kind of tell her what what we're doing and she just kind of says you know sounds good uh, so it was it was good to have some kind of critical feedback on you know what we're doing and and why we're doing it so yeah there, there was challenges but i think it was it, it was a net benefit but um yeah you made a comment keaton kind of like goes with the flow my experience was if he like maybe had some reservations about what you're going to do he'll keep those to himself and then when things start going sideways, it'll be like, I thought this might happen. I thought this might happen. <laughs> and he's also the kind of kid that'll let you tell him, like, you tell him to go do some sketchy stuff, he'll go do it. <laughs> and he'll come back and he'll be like, I know that's not going to work. And then when it doesn't work, he'll just look at it and she'll be like, told you it wasn't going to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, if there's something that if there's something that was real bad, he would always speak up, be like, no, yeah. we can't do that. That's not going to work. We can't do that. And this is why this is why you're dumb for not seeing it this way. Like, yeah, OK, I get it. You got a point. Yeah, I, uh, when another another great thing about him, like you can tell he's been around cattle a lot. I mean, we were moving uh, the heifer herd uh, just down the road, like a quarter mile. But we had to keep him out of this this wheat field that didn't have a fence on it. And, uh, it wasn't going well at first <laughs> and we, um, we just ended up, we we're just trying to like keep them out of the wheat field. They all wanted to come in. And so, you know, all three of us running back and forth, trying to chase them out and they just kept coming. Um, and without me even telling him, he saw an opportunity to get a group of them just through the gate on the other side of the road, like six, seven of them. So he just went over there, put, put them through those other cows turned their head around, saw those ones through the gate, what's going on. And that allowed them to, for us to get their heads flipped around. And yeah, just, uh, something like that, that you're just like, holy shit. He's, he's been around cattle a lot for it to, to realize you could, you could do that. Yeah. He won't say anything. Mm -hmm. Like he won't say anything and you'll look up and he's over there on the next ridge and the cows are going in the gate and you're like, Oh, okay. I, I guess the sun does shine on a dog's ass once in a while. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's got he's got real good instincts around cattle. I like to tell people that if you want to learn good stockmanship, 
go find the fat old slow fat guy on a slow horse because he'll always be <laughs> in the right spot and he'll never be rushed. He'll never run. That's the guy you want to learn from. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Bob Kenford, I'm talking about you right now. <laughs> uh, so now that we're, it's been, I should have looked and saw when the last one was. I know 74. We haven't done one since the beginning of the year, have we? Uh, no. No. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I was on, I think, originally mid-December 21 and then again sometime last summer in the summer of 22. Well, I guess we'll just do it once a year then. Sounds good. <laughs> so tell me about your transition to re- from conventional regenerative now that you're three years in. Well, we're, uh, this was our fifth year actually, okay. uh, uh, grazing it up, but yeah, it's so like the last time I was on was December or middle of summer last year. And we had started getting a lot of rain, but before that, uh, for the first three years, it started like regenerative grazing. We were, we were in a drought and, you know, I, I saw a lot of the benefits from, uh, harvest efficiency of grass and, um, uh, getting getting more getting more rest on the grass that it, that it's grown a little bit a little bit more i thought but we really hadn't seen like a huge jump just because we were so dry so last year 22 we had a good amount of rain and everything just exploded and yeah we were way understocked last year and uh then coming into this year um we had had good rain again had back-to-back good years and Thing, things exploded again and um we scaled up we doubled the our numbers from from um uh, 22 to 23 in the amount of custom grazers we brought in and we still probably didn't touch a third to 40 percent of the ranch and so we have a whole bunch of stuff stockpiled and um we've even got some rain this fall which um so our fall regrowth is good and you know, it'll sit, it'll, you know, that regrowth will just sit there over the winter and uh, just be dormant. And as soon as the sun shines in the spring, it'll green back up. And if we can get any kind of moisture in the spring, we should be off and running again. And even if it's dry next year, I think our grass is such a good start on it. And the root systems are deep and healthy that, and we're going into winter with a good soil moisture profile. I think we'll at least have a okay year, even if it doesn't rain, hopefully, but yeah, it's uh, uh, so much has changed. It's yeah, our land looks completely different than it did even two years ago. Yeah, have you measured your forage? Like, um, no, not 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 uh, not officially, but uh, just by, I I have in the amount of like, uh, just amount of like cattle days are on an acre, and so a few years ago I was figuring on our pasture land we were getting harvesting four to 600 pounds uh, of forage an acre. And this year we were at about uh, 1,200 pounds of, uh, of forage an acre that, that we're harvesting. And, you know, some some spots are still two to two to 400, but on the average there, we have a lot of biomass out there. And it's uh, also to the point where, you know, we might, we're not getting uh, sometimes, especially with the, with the, the steers this year, uh, we had a goal of a pound a day and they came in at 0.7 pounds a day um you know we have a lot of uh tame introduced grasses cool season grasses and uh later in the summer they start drying out 
And so um, we probably are going to have to move off those a little bit quicker or move through them quicker and then allow that regrowth to to come in 60 days after, maybe come back through and, and graze them again and, and move on to some native pastures maybe a little bit quicker. But um, also I think, I think the point, I think it was a, a we could have did that better. Um, but also those uh, steers had not uh, been pulled off grain until they came onto the place. And so their uh, rumen really hadn't gone through that transition. Did there, they catch so, for like two weeks? They go backwards? Uh, I don't think they gained a single pound for the first 30 days. Um, there wasn't a lot of green early in the spring last year. We uh, we were pretty dry right away in the spring. And then uh, about May 20th, it started, started raining and greening up pretty good. And so they got here on like April 30th. So I, I, and then, you know, that green didn't start coming until end of May. So I think there was 30 days there where they, they might've even went backwards and then, and then gained. So going forward, uh, the cattle owner is going to try to pull them off grain, you know, if it's not super cold or whatever, uh, <laughs> yeah, 30 to 45 days before they come. And I think that'll, that'll really help. And we'll make up some pounds pounds there and um yeah then we'll see how it goes if if i think we need to be a little bit more selective down the stretch you know if it, if it gets dry or or you know if things look great maybe we can get more aggressive with it but yeah just kind of being a little bit more a little bit more flexible in the in the grazing because uh we the last last uh three four weeks that they were here we had so much grass out in front of us um still that we knew, knew we weren't going to get it all we um we still move them once or twice a day. We just made the paddocks bigger. So, you know, the animal impact is less, but uh, they're just getting more of the green stuff. And, and even doing that, um, there's a lot of standing forward still out there and didn't get trampled, but I mean, it still looks pr pretty, pretty damn good. Um, and so, yeah, we might incorporate that a little bit more if it gets dry and, you know, when it greens up next year, if you left too much behind, you can always hit that, hit that pasture in the middle of the flush when that grass is really lush and, and utilize some of that old dead forage. So yeah, just seeing different ways that uh, we can kind of graze and utilize the grass to try to hit, you know, cause if, if we don't hit the gains that, you know, the customer wants, uh, he'll probably go find someone else to graze them or, or, or it just doesn't make sense for him. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I've never liked doing stuff on, on gain rate anything like that uh, let's take a quick break go recycle let's take a quick bathroom break go recycle coffee and come right back sounds good and we're back so i had to look let's wait for you for just a few seconds it was number 73 not 74 that was back in uh, july last year been a minute yeah it has yeah it has so we were talking about stockpiled grass and oh, this is just burning me up, man. So we had a pretty decent year for growing grass down here in the Red Hills. And kind of like you, like I have way more stockpiled than than I that I could ever possibly use over the winter. It, it to put it in perspective, I made the decision about you know, I was kicking a can down the road with my custom grazing clients, like as far as I could. And we got down to mid May and that's when I finally had to make a decision. I'm like, okay, we'll come in with this number. 
was a little less than half of what I would what I would have brought in in a quote normal average year, which normal is just a setting on a dryer. Average is just a made up number anyway. But if we would have had some decent rains, you know, through the winter and early spring, I would have come in a lot heavier. So we came in real light. And when they when they showed up at the end of May, I told them, I was like, you better be prepared to send me trucks July 15th. Like, just just be warned we might be able to get to July. Like, that's what I think right now. And then it starts raining. Great. Now here we are sitting in the middle of November. I moved into a pasture uh, Monday that had 114 days of rest on it. Normally, I would have already been through there once, but we came in so light. And, and kind of like you, I I take about 400 pounds per acre on the first lap. Then the second lap, it, that's kind of where I start is about 400 pounds an acre. And I, I make 400 pounds an acre of harvest. And that's where I start and I make adjustments from, from there, whether I need to go a little harder or a little bit lighter. I've kind of stayed, stayed in that, that 400 pounds an acre band for almost every, every move had to leave them some places a little bit longer just because I wasn't going to be around. Maybe had to move, you know, do a short move here or there. I've got a tremendous amount of stockpile and, um, we're not adverse to fire down here in the red Hills. So I'm probably going to light a bunch of it on fire next year. And I, I was thinking about this on the break. So there's like eight properties but there's only seven of us there's there's a deer hunter uh then there's a neighbor that's got two properties leased then there's my cousin then there's uh my buddy that's just on my north side that i run with for a long time nate I, we've run together for i don't know 13 14 years now we've burned a lot together he's on the north side then i've got another guy um that's most of my east side and a little 720 acre landlock. There's there's two little landlock 720 acre, 740 acre deals. There's one that's owned by another deer hunter, one that's owned by a buddy of mine, and he's like, I want to burn. My neighbor with the two absentee landowners, the two lease properties, he's like, I got to burn it. I got to burn it. Well, this whole area I'm talking about is bordered on the north side by a river that's got some farm fields on the south side of it. The south side's a highway. The east side is a it, it's a gravel road, and the west side's a blacktop road. Eighteen thousand five hundred acres in there. So that's what we're that's what I want to do <laughs> with the yeah. bunch of my grass is I want to light it on fire. Um. So yeah, it's a 18, big fire. Yeah, eighteen. 18, 18 and a half thousand acres. I'll probably need like a hundred dudes to pull that off. <laughs> There's no fire culture where you are in North Dakota, correct? Um, a, a little bit. Well, the the ranchers, a fire is a disaster here. Uh, the the Forest Service and the Park Service here like to burn. Um, so so there is a little bit of of that out in the out in the grassland grasslands and the badlands. But as far as people privately burning, no, it doesn't really happen. What what would I have to do? to get you talked in to burning 40 acres next year. Oof. Or, not even, I, I, I just, could be talked into it pretty, pretty easy. It, it, it'd be making it okay with the community. 
Well, as long as it stays on your property, what are they going to say about it? Uh, yeah, I'd still have to let the uh, fire department know and they'd have to have some, they'd have to have a unit out there. And, but yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, would be against it. I mean, it, I'm advocating it as an experiment. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying Trevor, go burn your whole ranch. I'm not yeah. saying Trevor, go burn a quarter of your ranch. I'm saying Trevor, go burn a postage stamp. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, if- I, I, yeah, it's a possibility. If you're swimming in stockpiled grass, go burn a postage stamp Mm -hmm. just so you can watch it, just so you can see how it recovers and maybe cut it in half, use half of it and rest the other half and see what that does in another six months or in another year. And, and, and just, and just see, like, I Mm -hmm. just, I'm really I don't know what else I can say to really encourage you to do an experiment with fire to see what it does. You know, now that you're five years down this road of regenerative and you're, you're getting some good, healthy plants, you're getting good, healthy root reserves. Just see, see what happens. I mean, you might wake up something really cool like Eastern gamma grass. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I'll definitely, they'll definitely consider it. There might be some spots where we could put, uh, you know, just mow, mow a fire line all the way around it. Good, good, good bit of, and yeah, just slide up 20, 40 acres or something. Just see what happens. I mean, and you don't have to get crazy and do it on 15 mile an hour wind day. Like I like to do, (laughs) I mean, do it on a nice calm day where it's not going to go anywhere and just sit out there with a six pack of beer and have a nice manageable little cool fire. Yeah. If we were, if we were 10, 15 miles West, uh, out in the badlands, there's a lot of, um, uh, Rocky mountain juniper, we call them cedar trees, but Rocky mountain juniper trees, uh, encroachment that, you know, there's whole canyons that they've just completely choked out. And if I were ranching over there, I definitely want to, would want to burn it or, but yeah, I I'm, I'm, I'm for an experiment. <laughs> and if you, if you don't know, that's fine. But I know that there's some juniper trees. The ones we have are junipers, Virginia, Eastern red cedar. They're, fire nukes them like as if you get all the green off the tree you can just leave it standing there and it's gonna die and i know that there's some juniper trees that you have to cut spray and then burn it (laughs) and then you might kill it that are kind of they're kind of jerks do you what kind of what what between the two extremes do you have uh, the, the type that they'll, they'll torch out in a fire and yeah, then they're dead. So probably sounds like it's similar to an Eastern red cedar. Have you ever seen a Canyon full of them go up all at once? Yeah, I have. It's, it's crazy. I mean, if you've never seen it, if you've never seen cedar trees blow up, like the closest thing is the watching like some wildfire videos out of California when the big pines and the big eucalyptics and the big fir trees are blowing up. That's what it looks like. there'll be, I don't know, 150, 200 feet of flame in the air in a column of smoke. So black that it like you get in the right spot and it just turns to night. Yeah. From a ways away, it almost looks like an oil fire when, when, when they're, uh, when there's a whole bunch of cedars going up. So where my ranch, so I live in Sun City, which is down in the river valley, and the ranch is eight miles south, seven, eight miles south down on the ridge. And it's not like super, super high or anything, but I've got a pretty good view. Like 
the horizon is 30 plus miles in any direction. So I've got a good, nice long view from the ranch. And I, I don't know how anybody else is, what anybody else looks at when they're driving around. But when I'm cruising through the pasture, I'm doing a horizon scan every few minutes. Like, just as habit, just to be situationally aware. And when I see smoke on the horizon or smoke anywhere, like, I want to know where that's at. I want to know where that that's at. I want to know what the wind is doing. And I want to know if this is a threat. And if it's not a threat, I want to make sure it's not a threat to any of my buddies. And I can tell by the color of the smoke just about what it is. I mean, I've gotten to the point where I can tell a wheat field stubble fire from a grass fire. You can tell a grass fire. I mean, whether they're burning, I can almost tell a difference between when they're burning corn stalks and when they're burning wheat stubble. <laughs> if it's burning in the pasture, I can tell you what it's burning in. I can tell you if it's burning up brush. I can tell you if it's mostly grass or I, I can tell you that's in a whole bunch of cedar trees. Just, <laughs> yeah. Just by looking at the color of the smoke, I guess when you, when you look at fire for 30 years, you kind of understand a few things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what else is on your mind today? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, just, we got back from EL here, um, this weekend from our, uh, yeah. Executive link ranch profit meetings. Uh, I'll, when I'll we meet. One. I think three for me, hopefully Dallas gives me a discount. Uh, you don't even give me a discount. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. The, like our EL, EL board meets three times a year, two times, uh, in Colorado Springs and then one time on the ranch. So yeah, just got done with our, our, kind of uh year end fall meetings and yeah they went they went they went pretty well we had a good year we need several more just like it <laughs> but uh yeah it was a good year and and everyone on our board is making making great progress too and yeah it's it's exciting to kind of be in that that community of people where was your summer meeting uh laramie wyoming who who is your host? Uh Chris and Samantha Starks. Okay. They're yeah. And it was it it was it was great. It was you know completely different environment. They had a bunch of uh hay meadows, irrigated hay meadows that uh they're taking out of hay production and doing some doing some grazing on and man, there's just endless, endless potential for for that type of stuff for four months. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you're also on a board with Matthew and Lacey Brent. Uh, no, they're not on our, on, on, on our board. Um, yeah, they're on a different board. They're just in this, in the chapter also. Okay. Well, I was hoping to get a quick update on how they were doing. I haven't, haven't really. I, talk, I, I talked to Matt a lot, uh, here, here this last week. Yeah. They're doing good on their, on their new place or I guess if someone has uh cattle, they need fed. Matt said, he'll take all he can get, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's got a little yard there, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I guess they had their summer meeting for their board out at their place too, and everyone's pretty impressed with the, what they're doing on their place. I'm just glad they're in a place where they don't have to worry about water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, so what are you going to do this winter without cows? It's a good question. Uh 
I have, I have the oil field business, um, but kind of have some good guys hired right now. So I, I haven't even been out on the road here for three and a half months. Um, so that's a real good question. I'm spending a lot of time on the computer doing, doing invoicing and stuff and, and, uh, bookkeeper work. But, um, I think uh, running a business Trevor. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I'm a fan of it or not (laughs) (laughs) rather be outside, but yeah, I, I think just, just continue to, to grow that. And, um, we're, we have all of our, our, our numbers pretty well sorted out after the disaster. I kind of had put together where I was running everything out of one, uh, a business and a ranch out of one checking account. And, (laughs) <laughs> kind of throwing everything together for my accountant at the end of the year. But uh, yeah, we're in a good, good spot. I'm confident in kind of what we're doing and how we can scale things. And then that will be able to actually confident that we'll be able to make all of our payments next year. So it's a, it's a pretty good spot. So I guess just, just kind of nailing down the stuff that's, you know, really doing well for us and, and growing that and, trying to trim the fat. And then, uh, we still have like some mission vision stuff to, uh, kind of go through. And, and that's been on our, when you go to EL, you come, come away from each meeting with like a action list. And, uh, a big thing is kind of figuring out your mission vision and, and where you want to go. And we've had trouble kind of getting a lot of that stuff done. Cause we were kind of in triage mode where <laughs> it's tough to focus on that stuff. If, if you, if you're not sure, you know, if you're going to be able to make payments or stuff or anything, but, uh, here the last two years, we've kind of straightened things out. So yeah, working on that. And then, you know, working instead of working in the business, working on the business, doing a lot of that stuff, but it's really helped me, uh, become a better, um, business owner just because I really didn't have any direction or, you know, I knew how to, I think I've always been fairly good at managing people, um, but not managing money or, or a lot of like the, just the, this, the dumb clerical stuff that you have to like keep sending into the state and renewing licenses and stuff. I've always been bad at that. Still not great at it, but um, it's really helped me to structure the business and just how to deal with people and, and um, try to keep, keep some guys around for the long term instead of keep having turnover every couple summers because i was kind of in the model you know we were talking about with uh with ranch employees i was kind of doing that model with the oil field business too just hiring seasonal employees for the for the busy months in the summer but um now trying to keep keep guys around and have some additional enterprises that 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 can keep people busy year-round because you can just get a lot lot higher quality uh employees if you're you keep them around full time not that younger guys aren't but they just don't have the experience and can't troubleshoot like maybe a guy in his late 20s mid 20s can yeah yeah for sure you know there's definitely a value to having somebody that's got a little bit of experience and has seen a few things knows how to take care of a minor problem or two without having to pick up the phone and call you and hey i'm broke down on the side of the road like um, did you put fuel in it? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, just just the stupid things. So, what would be what's next for you? What are you looking at for twenty twenty four? You mentioned something about scaling up. 
uh, custom grazing, you got to try yeah. to push that a little bit harder and, and not leave so much stockpiled grass behind. Yeah. So we're going to take on 900 steers next year. And then probably that second group is probably going to be somewhere between five and 600. And which I, I still think that's pretty safe and going to be a little bit understocked, but that's kind of, um, probably maxing out our current water situation that, that, that we have. Um, I'm probably even to, to get to that, I'm probably still going to end up putting 10 or 15,000 dollars into some, some upgrades and replacing some inch and a quarter line with, with, with two inch lines just so we can get, get, get more flow in places and buying a couple more, a couple more portable tanks, just so we have more capacity drinking capacity, but yeah, take it on, on a few more and then trying to, you know, I have a few tanks that are set up for, you know, um, for over the winter. Um, and so I think next year going to try to keep some dry cows longer. I was planning on maybe still having dry cows up until now, but, um, uh, would have been like the 25th of October. We got a foot of snow and then it got really cold after that for a couple of weeks. It got all the way down to like negative 10 and, I didn't have the cows in a spot where I had good winter water and um, I, I didn't have any any labor out here for when we were going to our EL meetings. So I uh, sent them down the road. So I think next year doing some planning so we can keep keep cattle a little bit later and maybe uh, convincing one of my guys to stick around till mid-November or something. But I, I think there's definitely meat on the, meat left on the bone there as far as grazing later in, in, in into the fall. And then um, the, uh, not the steer owner, the heifer owner is actually a neighbor only about seven miles away. So it's real easy to move cattle back and forth. And um, so I talked to them if, you know, if they could even bring me a few days worth of hay, you know, in case we have a, you know, snowstorm next year, we don't have to worry about you know, um, trailing them home, we can just, you know, feed them hay for a few days, get them through onto the other side and, and then keep grazing that, you know, save them money in the long term. then. Cause I think they, they took them home and they're probably, they're probably feeding them already. So they might have a little bit of grass, but I don't think they, they have a whole lot. So I think, I think there's ways I could help them and they could help, help me in that way. I was just thinking I need to get out a little bit and take some, take a tour around the country and see what some of my neighbors are up to. Cause you know, what kicked off the whole hay war thing last year is I was driving home one day in August and I saw a met a neighbor who was turning into his pasture with hay bales to go feed his cows. And that's what kicked that whole thing off. And it seems like it seems like after last year, guys aren't just pouring the feed to them in November like they have been. Like they're they're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and and trying to feed a little bit less and make supplies last and stretch them out. Um, the couple of hay yards that I kind of circulate past on some of my tours, they're not quite as full as they were a year ago, which. That might be a little worrisome, especially if we get some winter weather coming in. Um, so, uh, yeah, it it I think it's going to be real interesting in the next twelve months and what it looks like. 
So I was going to ask you something. I just forgot, though. Yeah, maybe it'll come back. Oh, I, I, I think, you know, most of the cow-calf game is figuring out how to get your winter feed costs down. And any way you can you can do that, whether it's, I mean, if you think you can put up hay and do all that cheap and it, it works for you. Some people, you know, it, it works, but you're by far going to be better just, you know, grazing stockpile as long as you can, supplementing some protein if you need to, because you just don't have all that cost of cutting it, bailing it, hauling it, feeding it. I remember what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you about your water. So you're you're in western North Dakota, and if you put any lines on the ground, you got to put them what six feet deep, some crazy crap. Yep, if you want to use them in the winter. Yep. So is most of your water lines are they just laid on top of the ground? Um. Yeah. Well, I have pretty much for every chunk of land, or um, there is winter a winter water source. You know where it comes up out of the ground and it's six feet buried. But uh, for a lot of my summer grazing, um, yeah, I just lay above ground line from from that point, just just to wherever I need it, and uh, that yeah, that's that's worked very very well, and um, it it you know it costs a fraction of the cost, and you know there there I don't have I need to buy some more pipe, but uh, I was just trying to save some money, so dragging you know dragging some around a little bit which is isn't easiest and it's a little bit hard on the ends of it but um yeah it's it, it's so great just to have water wherever you need it you know a few thousand feet of pipe and you can just run it away from wherever hydrant you want and you know have the water but then you obviously you know depending on your herd size you need the flow like i've i've had to on pretty much both of my herds i have two water sources tied together to get above 10 gallons a minute to kind of get the water flow and volume that I, that I need on it. So it's, yeah, taking some creativity in it kind of sometimes looks like it's just cobbled together, but <laughs> it's working well. What it looks like it's just cobbled together. That means it's easy to take apart and move somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and as far as draining it, um, most of my breaks are if, you know, there's like a fitting or a valve in a low spot where water pulls and then freezes and thaws and, you know, you'll break on the valves or the fittings, but if it's just a, a pipe going through a low spot and there's a little bit of water in there, it doesn't, I haven't had any, any, any breaks on that. So, um, I've just had good luck just, you know, in the low spots, if I have a spot there to take it apart, take it apart, take it apart at all the valves, you know, just disconnect one of the pipes so the water can drain out and it's it's been working it's been working pretty well what are your portable tanks um so they're the shane barber uh steel tanks they're uh 1200 gallon tanks and we can move them with the hydro bed um you could also move them with a skid steer but uh moving them with our with our bale bed works pretty well just because you can take them a lot farther and faster than you can with a skid steer um and yeah, for the steer herd, we had two of those for 745. We're going to add a third one for that and then try to add another few gallons a minute of capacity by um, switching out some inch and a quarter line for some two inch line. I think that'll increase our flow a little bit to get a few more gallons per minute to the tank. 
And so then we'll have three with a herd of 900 next year. And then with that other group of five to 600, I'm going to put a second, a second uh, one out there this year. I just had one for 410 and that was pretty, got pretty tight at times. And so did the, the two for the steers, but not, not quite as bad, but uh, yeah, just, just having enough capacity or, you know, just water there that when they walk up, they can get a drink and they're not waiting around for water. Um, you know, even if they are grouped up kind of tight when they all come in for water, um, the ones that are drinking, getting, getting a full drink. So they're not, you know, just standing there slurping at that, at that trickle of water, I think is, is really important. So they can get in and out of there and back to grazing. And then, you know, then they're not laying around the water tanks that, you know, they get their manure out, you know, more, more into the pasture. So yeah, between those steel, those, the, those portable tanks and uh, that above ground line, that, that has really kind of changed how we graze and how we set up pastures because everything's not exactly around a water point. We can move the, we can just make the the pasture the easiest it would be to fence and then, you know, kind of incorporate where the best spot for the water would be. I've talked to, I've talked to Shane those those barber industries tanks are really cool and i'm probably going to own one or two of them next year and it's good to hear that feedback from you about sounds like about 250 to 300 head is about what one of the, the ones you have will water which is the 1200 gallon size which i think is the smaller one that he makes yeah yep i think that um yeah, he makes the the wings with the bale bed ones. I think those are a little bit smaller. He 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 has put it on like a I think a fourteen or sixteen hundred gallon one, but it's a lot less lot less stable, and you probably got to do some chaining then. Yeah, I think you know, bigger's not always better because you got to move it, you got to fill it. Bigger might not always be better, and you know I've been I've been looking at those that smaller size because I think that might fit my needs. But now I might think I might need to go look at a little bit bigger one, like, you know, a 14 or 1600 gallon one. So I can get more like 350 to 400, which I think is the capacity that I need versus, you know, 250 to 300. Yeah. We've, we, we've, we've really liked them. Um, yeah. The, the problem is that, you know, when it gets cold in the winter, um, they're, they're not great tanks. I mean, you can get by if it's probably above 20, you can, you can get by, by, you know, just whether you want to leave, let the tank run over a little, you know, set the float a little bit low, but then you're going to kind of deal with a mud mess a little bit, but there, there's different ways you can get by for a little bit, but yeah, they're, they're a great option in the summer as it gets colder. They're not, they're not the best. It would almost be. It would almost be probably a 300 day thing for me. I could probably yeah. almost get 300 days on a system like that. Maybe even more, mm-hmm. but you know, we won't get hard freeze that much, but when we get it, sometimes we get it like we've got the last two Februarys where it's just straight up under zero for two weeks. And that's less than ideal on everyone. That, that's when you put the cows on the Creek <laughs> or by a <laughs> pond and say, yep. Good luck. Yeah, so we could probably use it 160 to 180 days a year, but the complexity of your water needs to go down goes down so much 
uh, you know, when it gets cold up here and the grass isn't as delicate, I mean, you can make cattle trail a mile back to water in the, in the winter, you know, especially if you get those calves weaned. Um, and so, yeah. And so it, 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 it makes sense in the summer and you'd think it'd be, a, be a problem, but as long as you have that one water source per, per pretty much square mile, um, as far as winter goes, you should, you should be all right. The thing I get into is I'm like, okay, that's a great idea, but where would I, where do I have that's level enough for a tank like that to sit that I'm not going to have to go out and build a pad for every single time. And sometimes just sitting here, you know, of course, wearing my black hat of planning, <laughs> wearing my black hat of planning i'm like i'm just I'm, I'm trying to the part of the ranch i'm stuck on i'm just thinking there's like there's a thousand acres up there and there's like three places that i could maybe stick one of those tanks where it's not on a side hill where it's actually be level enough to hold water but we use uh we use wood blocks a lot to kind of just put it on our side to to, to get it level but yeah I, I you was, still you still need a relatively flat spot to even do that I was wondering if you could crib it up on one side and if that worked or not, but I was afraid to ask. I'm glad you said something. That, <laughs> yeah, that'd be yeah. one of those, that'd be one of those dumb things that I would try and not tell anybody about unless it worked. Yeah. About half the time we can find a spot flat enough where we don't have to do that. But yeah, about half the time where we have to put some blocks under one side or, to, you know, so doesn't, doesn't get all, cause if, yeah, if it, if it tilts, the water will just keep dumping out of it float won't float won't stop it nobody's got time for that no <laughs> so should i explain the black hat yeah sure <laughs> so in el there's a thing um and the boards i've been on have always been pretty big about it it's called the six thinking hats so there's like yellow green red black blue I forget blue is the scheduling hat black is the negative hat like red is the emotional hat green is the positive hat so when we're like negative about something and looking at something and throwing up all the negatives about it we say you're black hatting that take off your black hat quit black hatting so I i've got to i've got told that a bunch that's been that's been something that you know, not, not so much about, uh, other people, but when, you know, when people are talking about mine, it's like, nope, try that. Won't work. <laughs> try that. And it's usually your wife telling you take off your black hat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Every, everyone's kind of gotten the the habit of it now. Just like, yep, there's the black hat. And they're like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> Does your board at least have a good blue hat? Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we're pretty good about keeping, keeping time and, and, and working through stuff and, you know, and I think another um, element of that is knowing when to go over to, if there's like a good discussion happening and we're doing some, you know, some serious stuff, who cares if we go 15, 20 minutes over, but, but let's just, you know, keep track of that and like, Hey, we went over here, take it from somewhere else. But no, I think, I think that's a big part on how meetings go because some parts can run way too long and not really talking about anything important or you know should we just move on to the next thing if we're not making and uh, something our 
our board started doing is, you know, especially with what we talk about in the meetings, we just don't want to talk about any little thing. Like, let's bring executive level decisions and talk about executive level decisions um, to your business. Like, is this, is what we're talking about a hundred thousand dollar thing? Like, is that, that, that's, that's what we need to be focused on. You know, it, you brought up something that I'd like to explore a little more. So here on the podcast, like people hear about ranching for profit all the time. I mean, that stupid cash register probably goes off an average of twice an episode over 142 of these things, right? We mention executive link every once in a while. And for those that don't know, executive link is a follow on program. It's a graduate support program for ranching for profit, but it's more than that. Maybe how many years have you been in EL now? Uh, two full years. So yeah, we'll be going into our third. Okay. Maybe to talk a little bit about what EL is and isn't and what it's like the, the positives that it's done for your business. So, um, yeah, like we didn't really have, um, my dad's past. My mom li- lives in Bismarck. We're on the place. Um, got a living trust where I pay her so much every year, basically rent. And then I get, I get the land when she passes. Um, and she's really not involved in the operation. And so it's basically just my wife and I out here and we don't really have any mentors or, uh, you know, pe- people to kind of give advice, which I think is good and bad has done good and bad things for us. Um, and so this has kind of just given us people to bounce ideas off of because, you know, we there's a lot of things that, you know, we just go full on into or be heading this direction, but we don't even know if it's the right direction or the right thing to do um, or other options, different different things you can do. Just having other people give insight into into your business and um, their opinions on what, what they think is working, what they think is not working. Um, what, what can you scale? And then (laughs) also having your shit together, like in your numbers consistently multiple times a year, not just at the end of the year, everything thrown together and having people look at that and, you know, telling them, you know, this is what we expect. This is what we're doing has been really helpful for us. Cause like I mentioned earlier, every, the, the, I was running everything out of a bank account. I had a profitable business. And a ranch that was losing money and just kind of combining them all and getting that all straightened out has really helped. And then another really valuable thing, um, probably the most valuable, you personally probably spend, well, one sixth of the time on your own, own, on your own business. And then the rest of your time is spent on other people's business and really diving into that. And, you know, the problems or issues that they're going through, you know, a lot of you probably have some relatability to it and some advice to offer, but also you're gaining the experience that they are gaining because they're sharing everything with you, what they're going through. So that if you end up going through that in the future, um, you have some frame of reference. And then also, I just think the, the resources, the, that group of people, um, there's somebody good at everything in there. You know, there's somebody good at feedlot and, you know, there's dairy, there's direct to consumer, there's yearlings, there's cow calf, there's, you know, somebody successful 
at something, you know, at, 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 at every sector. So if you're going into that, you can get advice, you know, what worked, what didn't, what do you got to look out for? Um, and yeah, so it's, uh, it's really helped us. The, the, the bad part about it is, is it's, it's just expensive. I've talked to you, to you about this. It's just, it's, it's really expensive. It's $4,000 a year. Um, and for us to travel down to Colorado Springs, I mean, it's, it's a week of time or to, so it's three weeks, three weeks out of the year for us. And, uh, you know, and then you have travel and hotels and, and all that. Um, so it probably ends up costing us 15,000, probably all everything in it, but That's... just the, pro- the, the progression we've made, you know, it, it wasn't all because of that. We had to do the work, but, um, just the, the decisions going there and, and, and conversing with people and getting advice has led us to, I mean, the return on that investment is still is, is astronomical for us. I had it figured around. I don't know the exact number, but 15,000 seems really close between all the travel, the tuition and meals and hotels. And then, you know, you mentioned that it's basically three weeks. I had it figured as, as really a month, like 30 days, like 30, 30 work days. That's counting prep for the meetings, travel, doing the meetings, travel home and, you know, doing all this stuff. Like it was a 30 day commitment. Like I needed to have 30 days out of my work year to commit to EL. And I, you know, I'm not participating and it's not because I don't think it's extreme. It isn't extremely valuable because it is. I definitely see the value. I've just been to the place in the last two years that. I need to get my own ducks in a row. I need to get my own house in order and EL, you know, the year, year and a half I spent in EL, it showed me that like, I've got some serious structural problems that I need to take care of before I can come back here and, and really be, really be here for what I need to be here. I did want to stay like, and I'll tell you this, I wanted to stay because I like going. I like sitting in the meetings and I like helping other people. That's like, that's to me was almost as it was worth going was a being around our people, being around the network and B being able to watch somebody come in from day one. I don't know how you guys do your meetings, but like show up on Thursday morning for first session and they just, throw all their problems on the table and then Saturday noon, y'all are leaving with action plans and they're happy and they're hugging everybody. Like Uh it's so amazing to watch a business come in with a sense of hopelessness and leave with a plan of action and definable steps and have hope and go home. And then they come back, you know, three, four months later, the next meeting, you're like, we did it. We need every item on that list. We say if at least one person on the board doesn't cry during during the meetings, uh, we're screwing up. <laughs> okay, because <laughs> we've all we've all kind of you know went through our really hard stuff where, you know, and and it's emotional. And I my least favorite part of the meetings is our own meeting. It's it's so fun to to hear about others people's stuff and and what they're doing and to try to be able to to help them. If I had a choice, I'd probably go first. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, let's just get all my uncomfortable crap out of the way first so I can sit back mm-hmm. and have fun for a couple of days and help you guys. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I think we've got really good doing is, you know, when we get the list of facilitators and um, who's going to be at each meeting, um, is selecting the facilitator that kind of what we want to work work on. And uh, we chose John Haskell to kind of to, to be our facilitator. And we, we just had a great meeting kind of just going over our debt coverage ratio. Um, cause our, our biggest challenge is cash. Like things show a profit, but there's not a lot of cash in the bank ever. And just going through, you know, what we're spending on, on, on payments, you know, equipment, land payments, uh, pickup payments for the, for the oil field business. And figuring all that in is like, okay, well, is this even going to work? Cause we're, we're showing profits, but you know, are we, you know, are we just going to run out of money? And like, and yeah, going through all that and, and, um, he's sharp. And then, um, um, Jordan who, who jo- joined, uh, RMC here two years ago, um, kind of to help on that economic side. He's, he's great too. And so they've kind of really taken a, a, a step forward, helping people out with their, economics and finances as far as bringing in high level people to 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 help out um john haskell has that uh ranch right llc business for for uh doing a lot of egg accounting and stuff and yeah it's uh it was it was really good it was a good meeting and i'm yeah it helped us be confident that you know like i said we had a good year (laughs) we need several several more but at least we know that we're we're headed down the right path. For every gut punch at an EL meeting, there's also a couple of pats on the back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For I mean, sure. There was more than one that, you know, I walked out of there after my session and felt like that I'd just been beaten with a chain and punched in the gut, left for dead, but it, it gets better. <laughs> yeah, it just comes down to that you are the, you or I are the biggest limiting factor, you know, on our, on our place. And how do we change our mindset and our habits and what we're doing to, to maximize that while still doing, you know, what's right for the land and, and and everybody around us and for our bank account, you know, just kind of meshing all those together. Yeah, for sure. Well, we kind of kind of need to wrap this up. How do you want to end it? Um, I think I think we're in a unique spot right now, uh, in in the cow calf business. And if you went through a few hard years, like when markets were low and drought and everything, now'd be a great time to get out. <laughs> <laughs> and. Or, or or in a year or something, or at least at least run that question by yourself. You know, what would it what would it look like to capitalize on this market? Because that's kind of one of the paradigms I had is like, no, these are my cows. You know, I ride you know ride them right into the dirt. But have you know you can always you can always buy back and and use that market as as opportunity to 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 make even more money. Um, just because this this market's not going to last forever and uh then use your use your profits wisely i hope i'm a whole lot smarter not a whole lot 
I hope I'm at least 3% smarter on the next catalyst cycle than I was on this one. Yeah, me too. I hope I'm a whole lot, a whole lot more than 3% because I was pretty dumb, but <laughs> <laughs> still am. But yeah. <laughs> hey, have, I, I've done some dumb stuff and I know I'm probably going to continue to do dumb stuff. I would just want to make just a little bit of improvement. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like set that bar, set that bar low. So when I do manage to leap over it, I feel really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. What we do with what we do with profits here in the next, you know, if 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 you're, you know, are profitable making the profit in that cow calf business, what you do with that profit here in the next few years is gonna be what what sets you up for the future to, you know, get through tough times and be be more resilient. And if you went through tough times in the past, what are you doing to what are you doing to change that or mitigate that going into the future? Build resilience and diversify. Absolutely. And we, we go through these hard times and, you know, when times are hard, you kind of have to funnel and, and silo your operation. But as soon as things start getting good, don't just double down on what got you through the hard time. You need to go back out and diversify and widen your support base out because the, the, the catastrophe that siloed you last time into a certain kind of operation will look different the next time it comes around. And maybe the next time it comes around, it's not drought. It's some novel bovine disease that devalues the <laughs> cow herd by 50%. Like, I hate that I just kind of like manifest that thought into reality, but there it is, you know, or it could be, I mean, the same thing with chicken or hogs, but that won't affect us, right? some new novel disease gets in the cow herd that's a thousand miles away and crashes the value of cattle. Well, if you're siloed into that, now what do you do? If you have, if you have a very narrow support base and you've just gone all in on cows, because that's what worked for you through the last time of trouble. And that's what saved your bacon the last time through trouble. Well, we'll just double down and go all in on that. Well, the next catastrophe could kick the legs out from underneath that pot. And if you don't have any other legs on your pot for sustainability or um, what am I getting at diversification, you're going to be screwed. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and then we're looking into, or probably going to sign up a contract with, with grassroots carbon and uh, yeah, just to try to build out that resiliency even more, you know, in case there's a gear where, you, we don't have a lot of livestock income that that might be, you know, just another, another thing that could, could get us by. And maybe it could be in addition someday too, but um, that's, that's another thing that we're doing to build a little bit of resiliency into the, the system. You need to sign that. You need to sign that grassroots deal. It's a good, yeah, I, I wanted to, I wanted to go through the EL meeting before and just kind of get everyone's thoughts. But then I realized no one really knows as much as I knew about it. So they're like, yeah, sounds great. Free money. But <laughs> that's, that's kind of where I end up a lot of times too, Trevor. I'm like, I start going and doing the research and I'm like, a lot of the roads lead back to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I guess we're just going to have to be pioneers and maybe take some arrows and see how it works. Yeah. Yeah. There's just the opportunity cost of doing nothing. I think I mean, is greater than the, 
the uh what what possibly could go wrong which i don't unless unless you till up your land or develop your land or just treat it like shit i don't think there's a whole lot of whole lot of downside and and that's how i see it too that's exactly how i see it like unless you're planning on going pulling a moldboard plow through it just sign the dang contract and take the free money yeah and uh they they seem talked to a few different carbon companies and um our visions just kind of aligned i talked to another carbon company and uh, they were talking about interceding pastures and putting on 10 pounds of fertilizer to get everything kickstarted. And was, I don't, I don't know if you know how soil, soil <laughs> carbon and, and carbon to nitrogen ratio works. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'll have to text you here later and you tell me about some of those companies who are offline and it's not going to be on the record. I, <laughs> yeah. I might like to hear a few of those details and I might might have a few of my own to uh, to share with you. But. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Anything else? No, I'm good. All right. Well, thanks for the chat today, buddy. Appreciate you. Yeah, it's fun. Anytime. All right. Well, um, I'll let you go do your afternoon and the rest of y'all go have a great week. See ya. Thanks, Brian. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.